Hey everybody, just a quick note that registration is now open for the third annual Craft Spirits Packaging Awards from the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine and sponsored by the Glass Packaging Institute. If you're a distiller or a designer and the packaging or labels for your craft spirits or works of art, please enter now. You can find links to register on both craftspiritsmag.com and americancraftspirits.org. Thanks. Staffing is still an issue. Marketing resources and the dollars and all that, it's all still very real. But if you come to the Kentucky Bourbon Festival, you know that you're going to be able to rub elbows with the master distillers and have that. Even if it's only 30 seconds while you're standing in line getting your pour, you're going to be able to ask questions and talk to the people that made it. And that's something that really differentiates us, I feel like, from, from a lot of other events, is that you actually get to talk to the people that made it. From the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine, this is the Craft Spirits Podcast. I'm John Page, and today on the program, the Kentucky Bourbon Festival. Our guest today is Randy Prossi, the president and COO of the Kentucky Bourbon Festival, which is scheduled for September 16th through 18th in Bardstown, Kentucky. Prossi has more than 30 years of experience in festival production destination marketing, and economic development. He recently joined Editor-in-Chief Jeff Cialetti to discuss all things bourbon and the evolution of the festival. Jeff started by asking Randy to talk about what people can expect at the festival. Well, it's easier to explain to the people that haven't been before. Uh, If you have been, and it was 2019 or earlier, it's, it's been completely revisioned, retooled from the ground up. I mean, last year was our 30th anniversary, but it was also the first year where you could actually come to the festival and sample whiskeys directly from the distilleries. Uh, it seems totally counterintuitive that that's how it was, but it was mostly because of, of the way Kentucky laws were, not that my predecessors didn't know that it would be a good idea to have whiskey samples at the bourbon festival. Um, so obviously 2019 and earlier, it was more, I mean, it was open to the public. It was kind of a family friendly, free event, come and go, a lot of shopping and a beer garden and, and, and it worked, it worked like that for years. But um, what we heard after 2019, when we did a very comprehensive kind of a deep dive with the distilleries and the ticketed guests, or, you know, the people that were the enthusiasts, both said, that it needed to be different. And, and I guess I generalize it by saying the industry got very sophisticated in the last 10, 15 years, as has the consumer, and the festival was just kind of lagging behind. So um, when I came in and, you know, I came in a whole three weeks before COVID changed our world, but when I came in, it was very obvious that we needed to be more of a world-class bourbon whiskey experience. And so we went through every little element of, of the festival the way it was, and we got rid of all the things that didn't make sense as far as being a whiskey festival. So, for instance, and I, and I, and I am a classic car guy. My dad goes to car shows, but there was a car show. Great event, nice community draw, but it really didn't have anything to do with whiskey and, and the, the, that whole uh, theme. So that went away. The golf tournament went away. All the little things that were all fun event weekends, but they didn't really make sense. So, and then once you know, the one thing that stayed from the, the earlier iterations of the festival was the master distillers auction in conjunction with the world championship bourbon barrel relay. So those are two 
things that obviously have a lot to do with the industry. So they stayed and then the rest of the festival was built up around that as, as core. So uh, now if you haven't been to the festival or if you have, the thing that changed last year is we, we went from 11 or 12 distilleries that were involved on the grounds previously to where last year we're a 21 plus event. We have, we have a fenced perimeter, a controlled access. We're selling tickets for it, but we've gone from 12 to last year, 34 distilleries, and this year closer to 50 distilleries that will be on the lawn sampling multiple different brands and expressions from each of their, their distilleries. So you literally have every one of the, the big guys from Buffalo Trace, Makers Mark, Four Roses, Heaven Hill, Jim Beam, they're all there. And then you get into you know, the middle level, uh, Lux Row and Wilderness Trail and Mictors, Barrel Craft Spirits, Rabbit Hole, they're all there. And then the, the real significant growth that we saw was with the craft distilleries. So in, we never invited the craft distilleries before and that was bad on us. So last year we started inviting them and we ended up, I think we're at 24. So roughly half of the distilleries involved with the festival are the craft distilleries that have only been involved for the last two years. So that's pretty tremendous for, for as a consumer, you know, to be able to come in and say, okay, am I go, am I go explore some and try to find something I've never heard of before and really get into that? Or do I want to go into what I already know and see what they're up to? And I, I guess that's kind of a fun thing about the festival is that we literally have two thirds of the active distilleries in Kentucky represented at the festival this weekend. And obviously this being the craft spirits podcast, that's music to my ears that the craft portion of it has grown. Uh, so specifically um, are there set times for like tasting sessions or like what are, what are the hours that people are actually there sampling so the cool thing is it's a three-day festival and and we have three-day tasting tickets so you you buy a ticket it's 125 dollars. i think we're down to maybe 150 remaining between you know to sell over the next couple of weeks but you you literally walk in the gate of the festival and it's unlimited sampling the entire time you're there which is friday and saturday noon to six and Sunday noon to four. So there's no separate ticket to buy. There's no sampling tickets or wristbands or tabs or anything else you have to buy. Once you're in the main gate, the world is your oyster. And uh, and I mean, there are there were premium opportunities, VIP and premium tasting events and things like that that we offered that have all sold out for the most part. Um, but just your baseline get in the gate ticket is $125 and it's unlimited coming and going and it's those three days. So we feel even at that, you've got a really great experience awaiting you. And I see that you've you've got a schedule of uh, sessions like panels and certain things like that. How, how long has that been part of uh, the festival experience? Is that relatively new? Well, no, I mean, yes and no. I mean, so the original festival was literally, you know, Booker No or Fred No sitting around with Jimmy Russell and Bruce and Eddie Russell talking about their whiskeys. And so, I mean, the, the storytellers kind of that vibe has always been a part of it. But what we've done now is taken it and make it more of a, a structured happening. So you go by the stage and this year we're creating, it's kind of a retro 1970s, uh, television talk show studio kind of a feel where we'll have the interviewer sitting there and we'll have two guest chairs and so if you think back at the old the Merv Griffin show or the Mike Douglas show it's going to be very much that 
vibe, but all day long, we're going to be rotating two different guests from the, you know, and some of it might just be, oh, hey, there's Brent Elliott from Four Roses. Brent, come up, come, come up here and take a seat. Um, others will be a little bit more structured. And, and when I say the other, we have a VIP or a premium education level that, and that is where you have a separate ticket. You go in and you're doing tastings and blendings and you're, or you're pairing with, with food, or in some cases you've got cooking with bourbon and you've got a chef that is, you know, part of the show. And then what you get for your ticket is you get the, the cookbook or, you know, whatever that chef is offering. So there's the things that are included in the, in the admission. And then there were those premium elevated opportunities that you also had, but they're very exclusive. They're only, those are limited to only about 25 people per class to kind of keep it tight and intimate. And so people really feel like they're getting something uh, out of their, out of their ticket price. And one thing that struck me that you said, uh, one of the reasons for the way the, the festivals evolved is you said that you, uh, the market's a lot more sophisticated. That was the term you right. use. And this is a very, obviously this is a, a very exciting time to be in the bourbon industry as well as to be a bourbon enthusiast. And uh, just in sort of from your own observations, tell me about sort of witnessing that evolution uh, where uh, it's gotten to the point where the festival has had to evolve because the market has evolved. Well, and first and foremost, I mean, the distilleries and I, and I hear, you know, Fred No talk about, you know, the, the mid eighties and you couldn't give the stuff away. And he would fly as a, in his role as a brand ambassador, he'd fly into an airport and he'd be lucky if there was one person with his name on it, you know, the, the airport shuttle to his hotel. And now when these guys step off and hit the tarmac or come in there, there's fan, you know, fans there, they want pictures, they want autographs and, that, and they want to hear the stories. So I guess that's how the industry has evolved uh, and gotten more sophisticated, more, you know, it's trendy, but it's not a fad, as you know. I mean, it's right. the trajectory. Um, I, I did a little work in craft beer and, you know, we got to the point where that's kind of plateaued. I mean, there's still some new ones, but there's also some older brands and products that are falling away. And so I, it's already kind of leveling out. Um, but from the industry standpoint and a marketing there's now marketing departments there, you know, the finance folks are paying a lot more attention to the expenditures and an event like what we do is still, you know, it's a tool that's in the marketing department's toolbox. So, and there's more of those events coming up. There's a lot more competition for these distilleries attention than there was five, 10, 15, 20 years ago. You know, I mean, you've, you've got a lot of whiskey events around the country. You've got in Louisville and, and in immediately Kentucky, you've got a lot more pressure on these distilleries to make decisions on where do we want to be, where are we going to be in front of the best consumers. So we had to necessarily change to make sure that we're checking that box. And I don't, I would never say anything disparaging about another event or a festival. I come up through the music festival world, but the same weekend as our, our event is Bourbon and Beyond. Mm -hmm. They didn't have a, an event in 2020 or 2021 due to the pandemic. So I knew that we had a wide open lane to go off and really make those relationships and inroads with the distilleries to tell them what we planned on doing. And then more importantly, producing it. We executed it last year when we didn't have a lot of competition. So now this year we come in and the world's kind of going back to normal and all these other events that are trying to attract their attention are coming back. But I'm so happy to be able to tell even, and we don't, we're not discouraging distilleries from not doing other things, but 
when they're coming to us, they're making their master distillers and their brand ambassadors and their whiskey makers available to be at our festival. That was all I could hope for last year was let's make it a difficult decision when we're, when the world returns to normal, that the Kentucky bourbon festival is this weekend. And man, there's a, an event that's also very cool happening the same weekend. I wanted that to be a difficult decision on where they're sending, you know, their resources. And I'm really happy to report that for the most part, and if I, if it's not happening, I don't know about it, but they're, they're dedicated to coming to us. They saw what we did last year. I asked them to be multiple year investors in this change, knowing it was going to be more than just a one year change. It's a three, four, five year transition from what we used to be to what we need to be and what we will need to continue. So true to their word, you know, everybody, you know, it's a stretch. It's hard. Staffing is still an issue, marketing resources and the dollars and all that. It's all still very real. But if you come to the Kentucky Bourbon Festival, you know that you're going to be able to rub elbows with the master distillers and have that even if it's only 30 seconds while you're standing in line getting your pour you're going to be able to ask questions and talk to the people that made it and that's something that really differentiates us i feel like from from a lot of other events is that you actually get to talk to the people that made it you know and that, that was always a frustration of mine i've gone to a couple of brew festivals and i walk up and man i really love this ipa tell me about it and the person standing there might have the you know the brewer shirt but they're like i don't know i'm a volunteer pouring beer you know so yeah, i've been there <laughs> yeah numerous times and i'm always very careful in our events that we make sure that the people that are representing them understand what they're talking you know what they're serving and what they're able to talk about because we owe it to the consumer to to have that information uh, especially you know you mentioned bourbon and beyond um and you know, that's, that's Louisville. You're in Bardstown. Um, they kind of have the benefit, I guess, of being in the bigger city. Plus they've got the airport. If people are coming from out of town to get to Bardstown, you got to drive about an hour outside of there to get there. But um, do you see the strength of your lineup as well as, you know, the storied history of Bardstown itself? Do you see those as major draws that could uh, make it a little more level playing field uh, competing with such an event like that? Sure. And, you know, first and foremost, our tagline is whiskey only, only in Bardstown. So we're not a music festival. We're not even a foodie culinary event, even though we do feature a lot of that very predominantly. You know, that first and foremost, we wanted to make that message that if you're, if you're coming to Louisville and you're coming to Lexington and you're coming, you're doing the bourbon trail, You've got a lot of opportunities above and beyond just going into the distillery tours, which I, I guarantee you are all booked up by now. Um, but so our strength is the is the whiskey, 135 different brands and expressions from these different distilleries. And, and, and again, it's not music. Do we have music? Do we have entertainment? Absolutely. But it's all very much focused on that park like experience, world class whiskey event. We're closing at six o'clock at night on mainly to be able to showcase all of the distilleries in the region. Every single one has invested millions in the last couple of years in their visitor experience, their gift shops, their tour experience. They're, some have stages where they're putting you know concerts on. So we didn't want to compete with them or we didn't want them to not make the most out of their venues because they felt like they were obligated to being at our festival till nine or 10 or 11 o'clock at night. So by us closing at six, we get to breathe all these people in, give them that festival experience unique to our event, and then breathe them back out. So does that mean they go on a distillery tour during the day and then come back 
cool. If they're going out and spending the day with us and going into the evening, whether it's going to a distillery hosted event, which we have a number of those going on this year now too, or bourbon and beyond. I mean, I'm Sunday night, we close at four. One of my, one of my friends is the manager of the Doobie brothers. So guess what? Randy's going to hopefully pack stuff up and get on the road to go to bourbon and beyond myself. So I think that we offer that opportunity that people aren't going to just stand in one spot regardless of what that experience is. So we give them a lot of options and it's absolutely going to be an amazing time to be in Kentucky that weekend. And, uh, you know, three quarters of our ticketed guests are from outside of Kentucky. We have all 50 states. We've got Japan. We've got the UK. We've got Canada. Um, and it's not just, you know, continental. We've got Hawaii and, you know, Alaska all represented. And uh, so I, I feel really good. I mean, are they coming in by the airport? Sure. Are some of the neighboring states doing the, you know, the drive in and, and staying in hotels? Sure. But um, I, I've not had one experience where people, it was an either or. No one's comparing our line up to what might be happening at one of the other events. It's just, this is where you want to be if you're really serious about whiskey. And that's, you know, Bourbon and Beyond is a nice, it's a great music festival. I've been to it a number of times and you can get bourbon there. So, you know, why isn't that a good, for the industry to, to kind of high tide floats all boats? And I think it'll be, it absolutely is the weekend to be here if you can get a hotel room, you know. And, and now uh, bourbon has become a pretty crowded space to compete in. And especially now uh, with craft distilleries, you know, they've got, um you know, a lot of tough acts to follow there. Uh, what, in your view, have the craft producers been bringing to the table? And um, what do you see as the future of that segment? Well, and as you probably know, um, a lot of the small startup craft distilleries have found immediately that this is a very collaborative and supportive industry where if, if your dream is to start your own distillery and get into it. There's all the big guys that in any other industry would squash you if they could. They elevate you. They, they encourage you. They help you. If you have parts that break down, they help each other and make sure that production can continue. So that is one thing that we absolutely showcase within the festival is that collaborative nature. They, they compete for every little quarter inch on retail, but behind the scenes, they just like making whiskey. They like drinking each other's whiskey. They like telling stories. So I don't think that is exclusive to one level based on production. I think that's across the industry. There's that genuine love that kind of ties everybody together, and that only gets stronger. Um, the craft distilleries, and I say this, and it's all due respect, because a lot of the bigger ones are getting a lot more innovative. They're not just cranking out the same product. You see a lot more innovation and, you know, Beam is doing uh, the, the large, uh, large with the Japanese master distiller, or Legion, sorry. Um, and you start getting into a lot more of those barrel finishes and secondary finishes and things like that. But I think that's really, that really started with the craft distilleries. They, you know, they are smaller and more mobile. They can spontaneously redirect a little easier than you can when you have it a national or international brand where you're very specific in what your strategies are. Um, so I, I feel like the craft folks have done that and kind of maybe forced the, the mid and larger size distilleries to pay attention to that and focus on that and start introducing some of their own. Um, but my gosh, I mean, the word innovation, I don't mean to imply that the small crafters are innovative and the large guys aren't, but it's just a lot easier for them to kind of do those like secondary, you know, barrel finishes and things like that when you've got your entire 
crew is seven people and you're, you know, your executive leadership team down to the person that sweeps up the floor is eight, seven or eight people. Um, but that's exciting. That's, I mean, that's the consumers are looking for that. Um, they, they love to experiment with new things and not everything's great. I mean, I've tried some things that people were raving about and I, ooh, I didn't care for it, but that's the cool thing about this industry is something that I may not like you love. And, and, uh, kind of across the board i mean people talk about overrated you know spirits and underrated spirits but i guess it's to each his own and uh we try to showcase them all at the festival and i'm not going to ask you what you're drinking because uh that you got to kind of be agnostic about it in your position but i wanted to ask you how do you like your bourbon and when are you most likely to drink it well this this job has been an eye opener for me for a number of reasons. Number one, we're doing we we started off two years ago never having done a single barrel you know barrel pick, and last year we did ten and this year we did twenty, and uh, so the whole it's noon somewhere it turned into it's ten o'clock here and uh, so I've done some barrel picks at ten a.m. you know you eat a quick breakfast to have something in your belly and then you go, um, but I, when I first started someone tried to like pull me into, Hey, what's your favorite bourbon? And I said, well, it's Kentucky bourbon. And that, and that is always my answer. Um, but I drink for the most part, I'm still very much a neat drinker because I'm not afraid to admit that I don't know what I don't know. And I'm learning, you know, I immerse myself in this. I didn't know. And I, I joked, I used to work at, at Churchill Downs and, you know, Kentucky Derby and the only bottles that I had in my office or home were Woodford Reserve because they were the sponsor of the Derby. And I wasn't drinking it. I, for the most part, I was just kind of like, oh, there's a collector bottle. And so now I've you know gotten into this where two and a half, three years later, at home, I've probably got 80 or 90 bottles. Most of them are, are drinking bottles that I kind of sample here and there. And then I've got probably the same number in my office that, that I have access to. I enjoy it all. I mean, I really do enjoy, um, I'm still in a point though where I'm, you know, I knows and I can pick up things that I like or things that are like that I turn me off, but I don't know how to vocalize it yet. You know, I'm very big on the power of suggestion. So if you and I are are sampling something, there's something there, and you say, "Oh, that's white pepper." Oh, okay, boom, yeah. Or, or man, that has got, you know, that's dark cherry all over it. And so I start picking that up, and and that's fun, but. I don't know. Oh, yeah, I'm the same way. So <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever be good enough to go. Yeah, I know. If you know, like Caroline Paulus with Justin's House of Bourbon, she does all their tasting notes and she is just a tremendous talent. And when we go and do some barrel picks, I love when she's the one that gets to go along on the pick because I get to learn so much by about vocalizing what I'm experiencing, not just I like this better than this. And I'm getting better. I mean, I'm starting to, you know, get dialed in with some of the quote unquote experts on selecting our, our barrels. But um, and I, a neat pour, and I try to rotate it around every night for something different. Um, I, I mean, I will say, I mean, probably the first, I had an old Forrester birthday after my very first Kentucky Derby. There's four of us that went up into a, a secret bar that they had created called the Speakeasy. And anything you want on the bar, and it was all premium top shelf stuff. And, and that's what I went with. So there's a, you know, it was a little bit of a nostalgic connection to that. Um, but gosh, you know, first day on the job, uh, Michter's, you know, gave me a 10 year old, you know, bottle and, and, and I fell in love with that. Um, Cordell Lawrence with Peerless is on my board and I'm not a big rye 
fan and he gave me you know a taste of their one of their new rise and so that kind of converted me but i mean as it goes on and on i mean it's it's just it's fun i mean the knob creek 120 barrel pick that we did with freddie no it's a great whiskey but it also has the fact that freddie was with us on that and uh, um i mean rabbit hole we did the very first single barrel partnership that they'd ever done and we did it last year with the high gold and you know it was the alice in wonderland series and, and we sat in cave's office and and did that and it was such a, a an honor and such a cool experience we didn't think we'd ever do another collaborative uh project with rabbit hole because they told us that probably would not be something they would ever do again in kentucky and lo and behold you know we came back and they said how would you like to be our first you know single barrel cave hill uh release so I mean, I'm as I'm as much into the stories and you know, kind of the experiences behind tailoring how much I enjoy the the whiskey. You know, I mean, 20 different barrels, so I could say all those barrels are my favorite as we go. I mean, Penelope and Pinhook and New Riff, and I mean, we just keep going. And I think that's part of what's fun about what we're doing. I don't think you have to be, you know, the lifelong Jim Beam drinker like our grandparents were. You know, Pabst Blue Ribbon from birth to death. I think that's part of the fun about this industry is going out and discovering new things and and hopefully the distilleries want us to they want to get hooked so we go out and buy more of their product but as the consumer to have that much of a of a, a retail option i think is very cool absolutely, absolutely. and uh the, the last sort of question i have is is kind of a fun one um one of the things that kind of has surprised me among uh whiskey writers and cocktail writers as well as enthusiasts is how polarizing the mint julep is as a drink what are your feelings on the mint julep i personally love them so i'm gonna tell you right right now i i, I know that people think i'm not cool but i love them so i i'm on both ends of that polarization uh spectrum when i i lived in milwaukee and i came to louisville for a convention conference and the opening night reception was at churchill downs i had no idea that i'd end up working and you know basically putting on the derby for years but when we came off the escalator on probably what millionaire row four you know we were handed a mint julep and i thought it was the horrible most horrible thing i've ever tasted I'm not a big mint fan anyway, but it was just, oh, my, oh I, I like looked around for a place to stash my cup and never looked back. Well, then fast forward a few years. Now I'm at Churchill and the mint julep obviously is an iconic thing. So I tried like the mass produced and then I tried one that was made by the bartender right in front of me. And that first that was the first one that I really like, yeah, this isn't bad. And, and the sugars were a little better. It probably wasn't just a, a mass produced simple syrup. It was actually, you know, the sugars were and the and the, the you know the mint was modeled a little better and so and then I I come back now through the industry now I figured out that I really wasn't a fan of the bourbon that was the problem I didn't know enough about it that no matter what you put in it I probably wasn't going to like an old fashioned I probably wasn't going to like a Manhattan I mean all those things um, so now that I've got a new appreciation for the whiskey and I'm really enjoying it now I like the mint julep. Um, but it, I, I don't want a batch, a big batch mint julep. I still like it's part of the visual, the showbiz to have to have it made right in front of you. And um, of this course. year at Derby Day, they had the mint in a in a, like a little can, like a little drawstring bag, and they had a wood mallet, and you got to sit there and you know and beat on it, and it'd be a part of making your mint julep. So I think the experience, the showbiz part of it, is is half the fun. 
uh, you know, it just makes the drink taste that much better if you, if you saw it created in front of you and, and you understand a little better. Perfect answer. <laughs> um, I, I, man, I, I hated it, hmm. Jeff. I mean, the first time I got one, I literally was that guy looking for a gap in the plants to go and kind of put my glass down. And, hmm. and but it was, it was, I was ignorant. I didn't, I didn't really understand. I was still like kind of in my beer phase. I wasn't really drinking a lot of whiskey and really immersing myself in it. So I've learned I'm a fan. All right. So tell us uh, just uh, the dates of the festival, how people can get there and how they can get tickets. Yeah. And it, it's September 16th through the 18th. So it's that Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's the main event. We do have a, you know, a couple, you know, and we're hoping to grow this in years in the years to come, but Wednesday and Thursday for people that are really coming in and spending some time, we have got some premium classroom events that are going and unfortunately long since sold out, but just to kind of keep an eye on us going forward. Um, the website is kybourbonfestival.com. Uh, the first thing you probably will be hit, well, maybe the second thing after the age uh, requirement is an opportunity for, for new visitors to sign up. And I will tell you that the insiders email e-blast we don't inundate you with a bunch of, you know, stupid emails and newsletters and things, but it absolutely is your opportunity. Those people find out first when tickets are going on sale and when dates are announced and things like that. So I definitely recommend doing that. Um, but the, and the thing we didn't talk about, we talked a little bit about history and now what's changed in the sampling. Well, this year is the first year in our history and actually will be the first and only event in the, in the, in the world where you can actually come and, and sample directly from the distilleries and buy bottles from the distilleries directly. So I'm sure you followed and people that are listening have followed the House Bill 500 and some of the, the changes there. But so the Kentucky Bourbon Festival, you'll actually be able to come in, do sampling and say, I want that bottle or I want that case and, and either go put it in your car or we've actually are creating lockers. So people that don't want to, lug their bottles around or whatever they'll have a, a locker space to, to check out so that's probably the biggest single thing that we're doing this year in addition to the number of distilleries but the fact that you can buy bottles and, and take them home with you that's that's a it's a game changer for everybody that's our program for today thanks again to randy prossi for joining us to learn more about the kentucky bourbon festival and to buy tickets visit kybourbonfestival.com We'll be back in a few weeks. Until then, thanks for listening, and cheers.